Please do join me in turning to Luke's gospel, the gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 9. As we turn to God's word, let's uh, go to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So uh, we have a a postcard for the church. Uh, It's kind of a banner as well. Um, I think most of you all know what it says, right? To be human is to worship. To be human is to worship. Um, That statement is followed by a question. Who or what are you worshiping? If you're human, you're a worshiper. Someone or something. If If you're human, you are looking to someone or something for security and safety and satisfaction, fulfillment. So it's good to ask that question. Who or what are you worshiping? Now, along with worshiping, we're all listening. We're all listening. We're all being taught by. We're all following someone or something. Uh, Listening to, being taught by, uh, following are the tasks, are the actions of a disciple. Someone who's a learner. Someone who's a follower. So to be human is to be discipled. To be human is to be discipled. And so there's a question that that follows. Who or what is discipling you? Who or what is discipling you? Now, ask yourself that question right now. Who do I listen to? Who am I taught by? Who am I following? What what music am I listening to? What podcast do I go to? Uh, To whom do I turn? Where do I go to get answers, to get counsel? And interestingly, it's not just turning to or going to someone or something out there. You know who's the biggest influence in our lives? We are to ourselves. You're speaking to yourself. You're listening to yourself. You may not think that you're choosing someone or something to listen to, to to follow, but we're all choosing. It may not be an active, deliberate, like conscious choice, but we're all Choosing, And over time, you and I will resemble, will become like the one we listen to. We'll resemble and we'll become like the one we're taught by. We'll resemble, we'll become like the one we choose to follow. Indeed, to be human is to be discipled. 
Because you see, everyone, you and me, are a disciple of something or someone. Did you notice the title? Christian Discipleship 101. At first, in my rough draft, it was Discipleship 101, right? Because we're in church. But I wanted to emphasize that it's Christian Discipleship 101. Discipleship that is according to Jesus, according to the Word of God. And, And 101, of course, it's that introductory course. It's the basics. It's the prerequisite course to all that comes after. It's Math 101, English 101, History 101. Here it's Discipleship 101. And our youth and adult class is going back to the basics, the basics of the Christian life as Sinclair Ferguson walks us through some of those fundamental basic aspects of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Jesus. Luke has a purpose in writing to provide and to promote assurance and certainty, and he's got a structure. We, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's the infancy narrative, there's Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then there's going to be the journey to Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself. And here is a watershed moment. Uh, Luke is moving from the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus welcomes and satisfies. He's moving now to Peter's confession and Jesus' call. When Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, it's a watershed moment. From now on, everything will be under the shadow of the cross. I want us to begin now by reading verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him. And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Let's stop there for a moment. The context is prayer. If you you look at Luke's gospel in particular, after every big decision, or before every big decision, we find Jesus praying. Jesus has got a praying life, and he is going to slowly but surely instruct his band of disciples, his apostles, those closest to him, to become, as it were, a praying church. As he was praying alone, interestingly, the disciples are with him, but it says Jesus is praying alone. They're not yet entering into prayer with Jesus. He's out, as it were, ahead of them. And yet this confession is going to take place after prayer. It reminds me of the book by uh, uh, H.B. Charles, pastor down in, I think, Jacksonville, Florida. It happens after prayer. It happens after prayer. Acts 
4, verse 31. I was in a Bible study the other day and, and several of us noticed that it happened after prayer that the building was shook. It happens after prayer. Here, the confession is happening after prayer. Jesus asks the question as to who as to his identity. And it's the same question that had perplexed um, Herod. We saw back in chapter nine, verse seven, and even uh, the disciples on the boat. Who then is this? Who is this? It's interesting. Jesus is wanting to know what popular opinion says about him. Jesus is like, hey, what do the poll, not the poll numbers say, but what do the polls say about me? What do the crowds say about me? Well, they, they've got the same answer that Herod had God, that he's John the Baptist, come back to life. He's Elijah, back to life. He's a prophet of old. That's a first question Jesus asked. And I think that's a question that most everybody in this room can answer. Like, people come, who, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we could give answers. But that's not the only question as we see that Jesus will ask. Because you see here, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his person and his work, about who he is and what he's come to do. And he's teaching his disciples about what it looks like to be his disciple. And our approach to the rest of the text this morning will be to consider first, the Christ of discipleship. And then second, the cost of discipleship. So let's look now at the Christ of discipleship. Let's pick up reading Verses 21, well, let's repeat verse 20 through 22. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So let's look at that second question that Jesus asked at the end of chapter, or excuse me, verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Remember early in Luke, the angels already announced it, right? In Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Was the announcement of great joy that the angels made. But Jesus is asking his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Now, this question is unavoidable, but it's also not unanswerable. This question is personal. Who do you, and it's interesting, that's you in the plural, and Peter is going to, as it were, represent all of them and answer. It's personal. It's one thing to be asked the question, who is Jesus? It's another thing to be asked, who do you say that Jesus is? It's personal. You've got to take it personally. Remember in Galatians, you've got to take justification by faith personally. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says this, the Christianity that saves is a thing personally grasped personally experienced, personally felt, and personally possessed. 
We're told at times, don't take it personally, right? When someone insults you, makes fun of you, makes life hard for you, don't take it personally. But here, God's word is saying, take it personally. If, if God's word is living and active, as the writer to the Hebrews says, the question that was being asked then, who do you say that I am? It's being asked to Theophilus, the first reader of Luke. It's being asked to all subsequent readers of Luke. It's being asked to you and me. Who do I say that Jesus is? And the answer that Peter gives, he's giving it as a representative of all. You are the promised Messiah. He says you are the Christ of God. It's the first of two key answers to the who is Jesus questions of Chapter 8, verse 25, and chapter 9, verse 9. And the second, we'll, we'll hear the voice at the time of the transfiguration provide some descriptions of who Jesus is. The title Christ means anointed one. It's the promised Davidic king, the one who Israel knew would bring salvation. Peter is making a statement of faith in which he identifies Jesus with God's plan to save Israel. Peter is demonstrating simple and sufficient faith. But interestingly, in Mark's gospel, before this confession of Peter, Mark puts in the story of Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida in two stages. Remember, he, he, he heals the man, and the man, first of all, sees people, and he describes them as trees walking around. And then Jesus continues, and he can see clearly. When Peter is saying, you are the Christ, it's almost as if he's got that initial right answer. But he doesn't have the complete answer, and that's why Jesus will go on to provide that over time. And what is the answer Jesus immediately comes with? The Christ that you're expecting, the Christ that you're hoping for, the Christ that you're longing for, the Christ that is promised, the Christ that is here is the suffering servant, the one who's going to suffer to be rejected, who's going to be killed. The son of man, Jesus says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. It's interesting, the definite article, the, it's the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's gonna be rejected by the whole group and be killed. The servant song of Isaiah, the suffering servant, the, this lonely path of suffering rejection and death that of course will be reversed with the resurrection where the son of man, where the suffering servant will be raised from an undeserved death and vindicated. Luke is going to continue to show us that only a suffering and dying Jesus will be able to save us. But look at verse 21. And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Wait a minute. Peter just confesses Jesus and the Christ. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. 
Now, what's going on? Well, some of you that have spent some time in the scriptures may have heard that this is called the messianic secret. And a lot of scholars and theologians like to spend a lot of time trying to figure out why this would be kept secret at this time. Well, if the disciples had proclaimed Jesus as the Christ at this time, not only would they not understand what that means, but most everyone that heard them would not understand either. And it would be dangerous to proclaim that at this time. You know, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And Jesus is saying, to quote Ecclesiastes, it's the time to be silent. Because people had a wrong understanding then and now. The people, and this sounds like it's an exaggeration, but it's not. They were looking for a political deliverance. They were looking for Rome to get off the back of Israel. They were looking for a nationalistic political military leader to rescue them from Roman occupation. There were so many instances where the people, the crowds, the mob, was trying to force Jesus into a role that he did not come to fulfill, a political and military role. Only after his resurrection would disciples be ready to make him known on the basis of a sure and more complete understanding. You know, the church really does minister to the world through her weakness, not her strength. The church, when the church learns to suffer well, where you and I learn to suffer well, to suffer with one another, to come alongside one another and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, that is the testimony that the world needs. Jesus is not strengthening his church to be triumphant and powerful here on earth. He's strengthening his people to recognize their weakness and look to him for their strength. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. If you go back to Daniel chapter seven, you'll, you'll read about this son of man as a heavenly Figure. He's a figure of authority who, if you look at verses 13 through 14 of chapter 7, you will see that he will, this son of man will come in glory. Yes, it's referring in some aspects to his humanity, but in other aspects, it's referring to the fact that he has authority and power. And yet now it is rejected. It is not recognized. Jesus here is bringing together, interestingly, the roles of the suffering servant and the sovereign son of man together. And that'll be fleshed out more as we travel through Luke. So Luke presents the Christ of discipleship. The Christ of discipleship, that promised Messiah and the suffering servant. But now he turns to present the cost of discipleship. And so let's turn to what Jesus says being his disciple is all about. Verse 23. And he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and, my, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The cost of discipleship. Listen to this expression again. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me. In other words, if anyone would become my disciple, what you need to do, Jesus says, is give up, take up, and keep up. He says, first, you got to give up. You got to deny yourself. You got to lose your life. It's, a, it's the basic orientation of a disciple, denying yourself. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, quotes a gentleman named Earl Ellis who says this about denying yourself. A person must become apostate from his egocentric self. A person must become apostate from his egocentric self. We're all born egocentric. We're all born curved in. Some of us still live with, sadly, at times, you know, my way is the highway. But we're to die to that egocentric self. The, the center of human life is the principle of self-will on the basis of self-interest. And nobody teaches this. It's just revealed. It's revealed the first time there's two Toddlers and one toy. It's revealed later when there are two guys and one girl. It's revealed later in any number of situations and circumstances. Give up. One of the basic orientations of a disciple of Jesus is self-denial. And it's not an aesthetic self-denial like I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to drink this. I'm not going to whatever. I mean, there may be aspects of it, but it's denying your self-will that's based on self-interest. It's looking at the interest of another, in particular, looking at Jesus's interest. Not only deny self, not only give up, but take up. Take up his cross daily. Another basic orientation of a disciple. Everyone hearing this would know exactly what Jesus meant. Why? Because just a few earlier, a few years earlier, there's a, a rebellion led by, uh, I think his name was Judas. Can't remember his last name. But the Romans got him and about a thousand others and crucified them. And they carried their crosses as a public display of the power of Rome and the humiliation of those who rebel against Rome. When Jesus introduces this expression, take up your cross, humiliation, suffering, punishment, death, 
It's used literally, but yet, of course, metaphorically as well. And not just take up your cross suffering as a human, but specifically take up your cross because you're following Jesus. And notice how it continues. And follow me. The sense of deny self kind of once. Take up kind of once, but then the word daily kind of reminds us that both the give up and the take up is ongoing. But here, and follow me, it's ongoing. It's follow me and keep following me daily. It's not just, I mean, Luke's the only one that puts in daily. Matthew and Mark don't say daily. Luke says it. Luke's got a purpose. Luke, I think, understands the struggle that people are going to have, and he wants to provide, what, assurance and certainty about Jesus. And so he emphasizes that this discipleship, it's daily. It's following the teaching and example of Jesus. Uh, One time I was in a pretty discouraging time, and somebody sent me, what do you call those things? Is it GIF or how do you pronounce it? GIF or GIF? Okay, look, how do you pronounce it? Okay, the picture. <laughs> Send me, and it was keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. I, so, no better words could have said to me, be said to that day. You know, sometimes what we need to come alongside one another and just say, keep on keeping on, keep on trucking. That call to discipleship, to, to give up the rights you have to yourself. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. To take up, to follow Jesus in his suffering and to keep up, to follow the teaching and example of Jesus, to keep on keeping on. Now, Jesus talks about this and this is costly, right? To give up, to take up and to keep giving up and taking up. And giving up and taking up. It's costly. But we need to spend a moment or two talking about the benefit of discipleship. Uh, Jesus provides reasons and incentives for taking the denial and death option. He provides arguments. And in verse 24, it starts off with the word for. For. And here is the gospel logic of paradox. Because the law of paradox is at the heart of discipleship. Look at verse 24. If you want to save your life, you'll actually lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus, you will save it. The quote in the the weekly email came from a book called Rediscovering Humility. Why the way up is down. Jesus is introducing a new way, and it is not the way of the world. He moves on from paradox to profit. Look at verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some of you probably check the markets every day, the stock market. You want to see how the market's doing. 
And Jesus is going against the normal market values. Jesus is saying earthly gain is loss. And earthly loss is gain. He wants you to operate on a different profit loss. Where are you accountants out there? Is it P&L? Is that right? Profit loss, the letter. He wants us to operate on a different ledger. These, my friends, are severe demands of Jesus to give up, to take up, to keep up. They are demanding. But they're most often accompanied by solid encouragements. Because you're going to gain life. Your life is going to be saved. Luke ends this section by including both a warning and a promise that Jesus makes. Look at verse 26, a warning. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about the pressure. He's talking about paradox. He's talking about profit. Now he's going to bring in some pressure. Um, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. to deny any link with Jesus. It's interesting, right? The man who made the confession later was ashamed of Jesus and his words. But he was restored by Jesus. That wasn't his last posture. Notice Jesus And of my words, you can't separate the man from the message or the message from the man. Who Jesus is and what he says. The way we respond to Jesus, the way you and I treat Jesus now reflects in large measure his response to us and how he will treat us. I mean, it's really a warning. And thankfully, um, through the years, I've seen that the warnings are actually encouragements. Because if I didn't have the warning, I'd have a harder time changing. But here comes a real encouragement, a promise. Look at verse 27. But I tell you truly, there will There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. A glorious promise of the already and the not yet. Uh, Most all interpreters land on the fact that what we're talking about here is the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are going to see shortly the kingdom of God displayed in the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the immediate um, aspect of the kingdom of God. But you'll see it later in the resurrection. You'll see it in Pentecost. And remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. Unless you're born from above, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter it. Here's a promise for those who are with Jesus to see the kingdom 
of God. Yes, Peter, James, and John saw it most immediately, but all those who trust Jesus see aspects of the kingdom of God day by day as King Jesus reigns and rules and cares for you and me and his church. This is a watershed moment in Luke's gospel. From here on out, Jesus will head toward Jerusalem. He'll head to the cross. You know, it's, it's what is it? It's the Christ of discipleship. It's the cost of discipleship. And right in the middle, of course, is the cross of discipleship. But in our passage, there's a call as well. A call. A call to faith in Jesus and a call to follow Jesus. A call to come to Jesus and do what? Give up, take up, and keep up. And Jesus is both the pattern and the power for discipleship. You see, we can be a disciple of Jesus sort of in our own strength. But I believe we sang, take up your cross, the Savior said, and it talked about that he provides the strength, right? It's a little bit interesting. We're called to take, to, to give up, to take up, and to keep up. And yet Jesus provides what we need to do that. This passage and others like it have influenced people who write in their diary in 1949. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, later martyred as he and others ministered to the Aka Indians. He was no fool who could to give up what he couldn't keep in order to gain what he could never lose. And then later in 1987, a singer-songwriter wrote these words in a song called Dying to Live. Giving up what I can't keep anyway to gain something that I know I'll never lose, trading in the temporary for the eternal. And though it's settled, I'm reminded every day to live or die to self, it's up to me to choose. So if I want to win the fight, there's a part of me that must die. Well, I've said my goodbyes because I'm dying to live, live for Jesus, dying to give myself to him. And the life that he gives will be mine if I'm dying to live. Sinclair Ferguson says it well. We follow a shepherd and we must always have our gaze fixed toward him. My friends, Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep of Hebrews 13. And that good shepherd and that great shepherd, what does he do? He not only feeds us and leads us, provides for us, he gives his life for us. No greater love. No greater love. My friends, to be human is to worship To be human is to be discipled. Who are you following? To be human is to be a disciple. Whose disciple are you? Whose disciple do you want to be? 
Father, we thank you for this account in the life and ministry of Jesus where he asked a couple of questions, one which was a safe question and the other was a very personal question that whose answer is life-altering. Father, would you be pleased to give us a growing understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how he is now with us, with his people, by his spirit, and he has promised to be with us and for us and not forsake us or leave us. All those who have received and are resting upon him alone for salvation are safe and secure. Oh, Father, help us all. Help this church to be disciples of Jesus. And as we are disciples of Jesus together, help us to walk with one another, strengthening and encouraging one another as we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.